I'd ask that if you have your Bibles, you turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll be starting at verse 25. I want to give particular attention to this account of Jeroboam and the golden calves for a couple reasons. First, uh, it's been a couple months since I've had the privilege of preaching here at Harvest, in part uh, because of my government-enforced study break while I waited a visa. Uh, So way back in September and October, as I'm sure you all remember, we looked at 1 Kings 11 and 12, and we looked there at uh, the account that the author of Kings gave of the uh, division of the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And so by looking at Jeroboam, I'm simply uh, resuming that study with you. And secondly, uh, I want to look at the book of Kings together uh, because I'm struck by its ability uh, to speak to a nation that is experiencing more and more political and cultural and religious uh, turmoil. From out of a declining religious and cultural situation in Israel and Judah, 1 Kings speaks to God's sovereign control over all that comes to pass. It speaks to God's concern for His own holiness and for the holiness of His people. And it reminds God's people uh, that the failings that we see in our own leaders uh, points to our need for the true leader, the true King, Christ, who alone can deliver on the promises He's made, who alone can provide for all our needs, and who alone can secure his people from all their enemies and his. So I think uh, Kings is a very appropriate book for us to turn to at this particular moment. So 1 Kings chapter 12, starting at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we come to your word, perfect and complete, and we thank you for it. We ask now for your help. I pray that you would give me help to communicate truthfully, to communicate in in a way that is appropriate given what you have said to us here in this passage. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you have said. 
you give us hearts ready to apply it so that Christ might be honored and you glorified, we pray. Amen. Now the key idea in the passage uh, that we just read is that Jeroboam sins against the Lord by thinking that he can offer worship to the Lord uh, on his own terms, that, that he can sort of set the conditions by which he would come to God. And he does this because, as we'll see, he doesn't trust promises that have been given to him by God, and he doesn't understand truly his need for grace. So I hope that's what, what we'll take away from the message here this morning, that we must worship God on his terms, not ours, and that we must trust the promises of God and we must recognize our need for grace. Now, a little background to our passage. The reason that Jeroboam was on the throne goes back to King David's son, Solomon. You may remember him. Solomon's reign was marked by many good things. For example, Solomon was the one who constructed the temple, but his reign was also marked by many bad things. Though he was the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon's weakness for foreign idol-worshipping women and great wealth resulted in Solomon and Israel with him worshiping foreign gods, which we read about in 1 Kings 11. As punishment for Solomon's wickedness, God promised him that he would divide the kingdom, but not during Solomon's reign, but during the reign of his son, Rehoboam, which we read about in 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam would get one tribe, and ten tribes would be given into the hands of Jeroboam. Now, God tells Jeroboam ahead of time that this will happen, and he tells him through a prophet, uh, and, and he tells Jeroboam that he would receive these ten tribes, that Jeroboam would rule over them. And as Jeroboam is on a road outside of Jerusalem, God, through his prophet, says to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11, 37 and 38, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. God comes to Jeroboam and he he gives uh, an incredible promise to Jeroboam. He says, you're going to be king. If you uh, will walk before me, if you will obey me, God says, I will, I will establish you, I will protect you, I will be with you, I will make your kingdom secure. Before Jeroboam has, has even ascended to the throne, he is told what he must do in order to be successful and secure as king of Israel. Obey. You must simply obey. That's important to have in mind as we fast forward to our text this morning. The kingdom has just been divided, and we see that Jeroboam is taking steps to secure his kingdom. In verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Both of these early initiatives by a new ruler are meant uh, to secure his seat of power. He secures his new headquarters in the hills of Shechem, and he builds the city of Penuel, which was a strategic site that guarded a passage east of his headquarters. So he has these building projects so that he will protect himself militarily from any 
invasions or any threat. On its own, this would seem to be fairly uh, an unexciting move, an innocent move, an, an expected move on the part of a new king that he would move to establish uh, himself in this way. However, this helps set the stage for us as readers since it tips us off to the fact that Jeroboam in his mind has already been thinking and giving a great deal of consideration as to how he could protect his newly acquired throne. And as Jeroboam further muses about how to tighten his grip on his throne, we find out that he's worried about another threat, a religious threat. Now, according to the law that God had given to his people while they were uh, waiting to go into the promised land, the people of Israel were uh, supposed to worship in a specific place. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Deuteronomy 12. We'll read several verses there. Deuteronomy 12, starting at verse 10. There we hear God's expectation for where the people should worship when they come into the promised land. It says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the, the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and female servants, and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Then notice this, verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. God's people uh, were to worship God in the place that he would choose. And this place uh, was Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem at the temple, uh, the place where God had, had chosen uh, to dwell in a special way with his people, to, the temple where uh, his people would approach him, uh, that, that, that this, this, this was, was the, the, the key location that they would come to. They would regularly make a trek to the temple there. Deuteronomy also tells us that three times a year during the various feasts, the men of Israel were supposed to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and offer up their sacrifices there. And, and these sacrifices were not to be carried out by just anyone, but were to be carried out by the priests who came from the tribes of Levi. And these sacrifices were, were meant to uh, appease God's anger against sin. They were meant to cleanse Israel, the, the people, the worshipers. They were meant to celebrate God's faithfulness and God's goodness to his people. And all this was to be done according to the instruction that God had given. Deuteronomy 12 tells us that as God gives these instructions for worship, for the place of worship, he tells the people, you shouldn't do anything to add or take away from these instructions I'm giving you. I am giving you clear instructions for how you are to worship me. But now that the lines of division had been drawn and, and uh, Jerusalem just happened to be on the other side, 
And as Jeroboam is thinking things through, the thought about his subjects going across the border several times a year and making the trek to Judah and walking through the markets of Jerusalem up to the temple, this seemed to Jeroboam like a very bad political move. Worship of the Lord at Jerusalem seemed to Jeroboam like it would result in the people's hearts being drawn away from their new king. For Jeroboam, suddenly, Jeroboam uh, did not see the faithful, obedient worship of the Lord to be the pathway of establishing his kingdom, though that is what God had said, but he saw it as an obstacle to his security and something that needed to be changed. So after seeking counsel with his advisors, Jeroboam decides to build two golden calves. Now there's some question here about what Jeroboam is doing exactly. Is he setting up false gods and breaking the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me? Or is Jeroboam setting up a new system of worship and breaking the second commandment, which we read together this morning? What's the fundamental problem with what Jeroboam is doing? Well, several reasons lead me to think that Jeroboam is not, uh, first of all, telling the people to worship false gods, but he is telling them to worship the true God falsely. Of course, that's not how he would put it. But I think the main issue in this passage is not that, that, that Jeroboam is offering replacement gods, though they would certainly come to function that way, but that Jeroboam is, is offering replacement worship. I think this for, for several reasons, uh, in part because if you look at 1 Kings 12.33, there's this uh, uh, telling statement by the author of Kings that, that Jeroboam had devised this thing from his own heart. Uh, and, and also we look in 2 Kings 10, the author of Kings makes a distinction between uh, the worship of Baal and false gods and the sin which Jeroboam committed. So I think here that, that Jeroboam's issue, Jeroboam's sin, is the fact that he is presenting a new kind of worship. Jeroboam's concern is that the people of of Israel, if they continue to to go down to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord, their God there, uh, they'll turn. And so he sets up this new worship at the northern and southern tips of his kingdom. Now it's easy to see how Jeroboam might have marketed the new worship sites to his subject. It was a matter of convenience. Why, why go so far? Some translations have verse 28 saying, it is, it, it's too much trouble for you to go up to Jerusalem. Why cross into Judah when you can stay with your own people and worship right here in Israel? And so Jeroboam institutes a new place for the people to worship. He, he institutes the calves at Dan and Bethel as new worship sites. But that's not all he institutes. That's that's not the only novelty that Jeroboam presents. He also institutes new religious personnel. Whereas, as I said, the priests had previously, as per the law of Moses, uh, come from the tribe of Levi, Jeroboam decides to broaden and diversify the list of those occupying priestly roles. He decides to grab priests from all over Israel. Again, it's easy to, to imagine one of the ways that Jeroboam might have explained this new policy. Uh, Yes, the Lord commanded that that only the people from the tribe of Levi were to be priests, but that was a couple hundred years ago. This is a different cultural context. Uh, that, That was written to Israel before they were in the promised land. That was written to Israel while they were still unified. 
A new situation, a divided kingdom, calls for new approaches. We can imagine Jeroboam saying something like that. Jeroboam also changes the religious calendar in Israel. He instituted a different period for worship. As mentioned, the law that God gave through Moses had commanded certain religious celebrations, key times of feasting and celebrating God. And one of the major ones of these in Israel was the Feast of Booths or the the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23 tells us that the feast was supposed to take place on the 15th day of the seventh month. But Jeroboam changes this by moving the feast back one month. He doesn't cancel it. He just moves it back. What's the big deal? It all seems very plausible. It appears to make sense. His reasons are perhaps not so far-fetched. Perhaps uh, there are even some, some good intentions on the part of those who support his new policies. Closer worship locations, more worship locations, more priests to do the priestly work, a small change in the calendar. Is this really such a big deal? Jeroboam, I don't think, is saying, don't worship the Lord. If anything, Jeroboam would say, perhaps, it seems like he's making the worship of the Lord easier and more convenient. Yet the author of our passage leaves no such room for a positive assessment of Jeroboam's actions. For establishing the golden calves, and with it we can take all the other changes that Jeroboam made, For establishing the golden calves, this thing became a sin. It was abhorrent in God's sight. It was, in fact, a very big deal. But why? One of the reasons it was a big deal is because it showed a tragic lack of faith on Jeroboam's part. Think back with me to the the wonderful, rich promise that God had shown to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11. God was prepared to establish Jeroboam's kingdom, to secure it. He had promised to be with him. He had promised to bring his blessing upon Jeroboam and his house and his throne. The pathway to blessing from God was clear. Walk in obedience before the Lord your God. Jeroboam did not trust that God would reward him for his faithfulness. He did not trust that God would bless Jeroboam and his people as they worshipped according to God's law, even as they went down to Jerusalem. In fact, rather than seeing uh, the Lord as the one who would establish him, he saw the worship of the Lord as the obstacle that would destroy him. Now, Jeroboam not only ignored God's promise, but he also saw the worship of of God as, as malleable, adjustable, Jeroboam thinks that he can set the terms for the worship of the Lord, his God. The commands of of the Lord about a place of worship, the personnel of worship, the periods for worship, uh, these appeared to be ignored or viewed as just suggestions or brainstorming for ways that he might approach God. There's a, a presumptuousness in Jeroboam that he can come to God on his terms. He can choose how he will draw near to God. Seven times in the last three verses, the author uses the Hebrew word asah, meaning to make or do. 
Uh, it's not as, as clear in, in your English Bibles because they translate the word different ways. So it's to make or do or institute or appoint. But in, in these three short verses, the author packs in this emphasis that Jeroboam is making, doing, instituting, appointing this worship. He is the one dictating the terms, not God. In fact, we see that Jeroboam is so presumptuous that he himself, not even a priest, is offering sacrifices at the altar. He thinks he can set the terms for how he would engage the Lord. Now perhaps it's easy to scoff or snicker at Jeroboam. Perhaps it's easy to dismiss him. Oh, Jeroboam, you're such a fool. How arrogant. But we must step back for a second and realize that Jeroboam's attitude is one that is very pervasive in the churches today. Just like Jeroboam, it is a common view, I think, that worship is malleable, pliable, able to be manipulated according to our current needs. That what we do in, in worship is, is really a matter that's open to discussion just so long as we have good intentions and aren't breaking any commandments. To say, as I'm saying, that we must worship God on His terms, by that I mean that we should regulate and conform our worship according to what God has revealed in His Word. This is a concept that chafes against uh, the view of worship and religion that many inside and outside the churches have today. For example, a number of years ago, uh, pollster George Barna wrote, the data shows a continuation of the pattern that first emerged more than a decade ago in which Americans feel tremendous freedom to construct their own religious perspectives and practices regardless of traditions and time-honored teachings. The American public is sending a clear message to Christian leaders. Make Christianity accessible and practical or don't expect our participation. St. Polster uh, said that it is critical that we keep in mind the fundamental principle of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. To this might be added the pronouncement of a church growth expert and professor at Fuller Theological Seminary who wrote, traditional church models no longer work in our fast-changing world. A commitment to reach the lost is driving our churches to find new ways to fulfill the Great Commission. Worship must change. How we do church must change is the refrain. Now there's a shift that takes place uh, that leads to this conclusion. The question that is being asked is no longer uh, what has God said in His Word? What is it that God wants? But the question is what must we do to get results? The question that Jeroboam considered is, what must I do to stay king? The question that too many in the contemporary church have begun to ask is, what must I do to stay relevant? What is it that will work? What is it that I like? What is it that he likes? Or what is it that she likes? People like video, give them video. People want more music, louder music, less preaching, less readings. Or what about the message? What are people, what are people interested in hearing? What will bring them in? Maybe if we discussed a felt need or a contemporary topic, maybe, maybe if we did that instead of talking about sin and the fact that apart from Christ we are under judgment, 
Maybe we should talk about uh, how God can give you a sense of belonging, as I was once told. Let's avoid using language that distinguishes between those who are converted and have put their faith in Christ and those who have not. That language just makes people feel like outsiders. I think there are two problems, at least, with this approach. First, like Jeroboam, it shows that we are unwilling to trust that God will be true to his promise. Christ has has promised to his church through his word, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said that the Bible should be publicly read and taught, 1 Timothy 4.13, that the preaching of the word is the means by which faith is imparted. He's told us that we should meet regularly together to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that, that we should give of our, our, our money in, in the offering. Uh, he he has, has given instructions for worship, what our time together on Sunday should look like. He said, this is how I intend to build and establish my church. Do we trust that? How we worship together matters because it's an indication of whether we trust that what God has said to his church, uh, the promises that he has made to his church, uh, whether those are true or not. Do we trust that the things that he has, has commanded are sufficient to bring about what he has promised? So how we worship matters because how we worship is an indication of our trust, of our faith. Do we trust that God's words and God's ways are what is necessary for God to keep his promises? This means that what we do on Sundays together matters. It means that that when we put together our services, it's not just a matter of what we feel like doing, but it's what God has said. Do we trust is what's here in our order of worship an indication that we trust that God will use the means that he has promised to use? Second, how we worship matters because it shows us what we really think about God and what we really think about ourselves. Jeroboam sinned because he presumed that the worship of the Lord was his to change, that he had editing privileges Jeroboam's actions revealed his conviction that he could dictate, determine the way that he and the people as worshipers would approach God. He makes changes to the place, to the personnel, uh, to the period of worship in spite of the fact that God has revealed in his word how he wanted to be worshipped. What this shows is that Jeroboam does not truly understand the vastness and holiness of God or that he does not understand the smallness and sinfulness of himself. For if Jeroboam understood these things, or if we understood these things, we would not presumptuously approach God on our own terms, but we would humbly and with great joy approach God on God's terms. Jeroboam didn't see God as immense and holy. He didn't see God as the one who is described in in Exodus 15.11 as the one who is majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds. He didn't see God as the creator of all that is made, the God who made the world and all that is in it, the God who does not live in temples made by man, as Acts 17 says. He did not see God as infinite in wisdom and power. He did not see God as the God who dwells in an inapproachable light. 
And he did not see himself, nor do we see ourselves when we presume to worship on our terms as being not infinite but finite, not intrinsically holy but sinners, not the creator of all things but creatures with frail and fleeting frame. The thing is, when we presume to worship God on our terms, when we think that we can set the terms for engagement, we have failed to grasp the chasm that exists between God the Creator and, God, or, and, and us as creatures. That we have failed to, to grasp the difference between God as holy and us as sinners. If we would only begin to grasp the weight of how great this chasm is between God and His sinful creatures, then what would happen is we would marvel. We, 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 first of all, we would not expect there to be any, any way of approach at all. But if we were to hear, as we hear in God's Word, that a way of access has been provided, then we would marvel. Then we, we would, would, would tremble. Then we would, would, would fall down in worship. And this way of access has been provided. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, offered Himself up for sinners to provide a way of worship. When we come into God's presence in worship, it is a gift that has been purchased for us. When, they, when the Israelites offered their sacrifices to God in, in the temple, that was grace that God allowed them to approach in that way. Now that Christ has made the sacrifice that we might approach, that is a gift. We could not expect that. We, we do not have a right to that. If we truly understood who God is, and who we are as sinners and as creatures, we would not presume that our way of doing things, our sense of what works, our current interest should be dictating the terms of our meeting God in worship. Suppose someone who was serving life in prison was granted pardon from the President of the United States. And with that pardon came a letter of invitation. The president would like for you to come to the White House for a ceremony. Now the prisoner has no business being set free except that the president would decide to show mercy. Do you think that the prisoner would dare to write back, Mr. President, thank you for setting me free. But if we're going to meet, here's the way I think that we should do it. Or that perhaps would work better. Do you think he would say that? Not a chance. Because the prisoner recognizes the power of the president and the undeserved honor it would be for him, a prisoner, to meet with him. He would recognize he has no claim to the honor of that audience. And he would just be grateful that he is drawn in. My sense is that the church thinks too little of God's revealed will for our worship because we think too little of God and too much of ourselves. We should not presume to be wiser than God in the worship that we offer, not when the only way that we can enter into His presence as we are doing now is when we come into His presence dripping with grace. We should just marvel 
that when there was no expectation of a way of approach, that a way has been made. We receive worship as a gift, the ability to worship as a gift. God does not need it, but he offers it to us. The author of Hebrews says that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. To realize that this, what we are doing here together, is a gift. That we can approach God with an expectation of his favor in Jesus Christ makes us marvel. We'll come into his presence here in worship, not only knowing that we should worship him on his terms, but grateful, marveling that there are terms that we can engage him in worship at all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we were dead in our sin, and you made us to live by uniting us to Christ. Lord, the worship that we offer is a worship that you have enabled. When we approach you in worship, we know that it is a gift that it is a gift that you have purchased for us at the cost of your son. We're not giving anything to you that you lack when we ascribe praise to you. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to know your holiness more more, and to marvel at the fact that we have been invited to worship you, a holy God, an infinite God, an eternal God, a God who uh, alone is to be worshipped. Holy Spirit, help us to see and repent of where we have either knowingly or unknowingly sought to worship you on our terms, not ours. Help us to repent of those places where we have just presumed that our intentions are all that mattered, not what you have revealed to us in your word. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have not trusted the worship that you have commanded, the means that you have given we have not trusted that that would be sufficient to build up your church and to secure her. Renew in us a confidence, I pray, in your appointed means. Help us to trust your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.